0: This podcast is brought to you by Recontract, the leading software to automate your reconditioning process and streamline your entire used vehicle management process. Visit Recontract.com to learn more. That's R-E-C-O-N-T-R-A-C.com.
1: Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year Automotive News digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash Daily Drive Promo to redeem. Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, February 26, 2024. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive
2: Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kalen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, 2024 F-150s have been piling up on holding lots around Detroit will tell you what's going on. Jeep's CEO lays out his plan to turn around the brand. And Subaru restarts production in Japan after more than a week. Plus, a conversation with General Motors' retired Vice President of Research and Development, Larry Burns, about why he thinks emerging technologies will usher in a new era of vehicle design.
3: That's gonna get exciting for the designers, really exciting, I think. I think it's gonna just unleash all kinds of creativity about what what a machine should be that supports our life.
2: Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up
1: in the auto industry. Ford has halted shipments of all 2024 model year F-150 Lightning electric pickups over an undisclosed quality issue. Meanwhile, shipments of some gasoline-powered 2024 F-150s started last week after hundreds, if not thousands, of trucks had piled up in holding lots around Detroit since production began in December. A Ford spokesperson told Automotive News that the Lightning Stop Ship order went into effect on February 9th. It's not clear when it will be lifted. The spokesperson says Ford continues to build Lightnings at the Rouge Electric Vehicle Center in Dearborn, Michigan. While the first shipments of the gasoline and electric pickups are in line with the early 2024 sales time frame Ford promised, some F-150s have been sitting in holding lots since late December. One commercial customer in the eastern U.S. told Automotive News the delivery date for their order of nearly 100 trucks has been delayed by eight weeks so far. Another Ford spokesperson declined to specify if there were currently any quality holds preventing deliveries of some gasoline F-150s. They said it was standard launch procedure not to release any products until they had undergone a series of thorough inspections. They said holding lots around Metro Detroit that have filled with F-150s in recent weeks would start to empty as they are sent to dealers in batches.
2: Jeep is cutting prices on some of its key models. It's also taking new approaches to marketing, branding, and dealer relations. Jeep CEO Antonio Filosa told journalists late last week that it's all part of an effort to turn around slumping U.S. sales.
3: The brand is in transition, right? We need to do something on the market penetration and market share because it's not where this brand deserves to be.
2: Filosa's comments come after U.S. Jeep sales fell more than 6% in 2023 from a year earlier to about 642,000 vehicles. It was the fifth consecutive year of U.S. sales declines after reaching almost $1 in 2018. The sales challenge coincides with Jeep preparing to launch its first two fully electric models for the U.S. market, the midsize Wagoneer S and the Wrangler-inspired Recon in the back half of the year.
1: Subaru has restarted production in Japan after a rare on-the-job death of a worker. The incident caused more than a week-long suspension at three plants and lost output of up to 20,000 vehicles. The Japanese automaker resumed operations Monday at its main global production base. Subaru says work restarted after it took measures to prevent a repeat of the February 13th accident in which the 60-year-old worker was crushed to death by a
2: 25-ton mold. And S&P Global Mobility is out with its annual U.S. Automotive Loyalty Awards. General Motors and Tesla defended their top spots. GM won the 2023 Overall Loyalty to manufacturer Award for the ninth straight year and 20 out of the last 28 years. Tesla repeated with the Overall Loyalty to Make Award. The Lincoln Nautilus earned a new award for Overall Loyalty to Model. Acura won the Most Improved Make Loyalty Award. Acura, Nissan, and Mitsubishi won loyalty awards for the first time this year. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, we spoke this past weekend on Weekend Drive about some of the challenges Ford has been facing in the first two months of the year. Now there's a new challenge added to the list. Ford has halted shipments of F-150 Lightning pickups due to quality issues. How long do you think this can go on until this becomes a real problem if it hasn't already?
1: Yeah, I don't have a definitive clock on that, but you know, it's it's always disappointing when you're stuck selling, you know, the previous model year vehicles. A lot of consumers don't particularly want to buy 2023 models when it's already 2024. They'd kind of rather be buying 25s, but they at least expect 24s. So we saw the kind of discounting that Ford's having to put on the 2023 Mustang Mach-E models. They're like 5 to 10% marked down, maybe a little more in some cases. So, you know, this is going to put them on, on the back foot until they can get those new Lightnings, you know,
2: fixed and safe and ready to roll. Gotcha. Coming up, we'll hear from Larry Burns, who led R&D for GM for more than a decade and is one of the world's leading voices on the future of mobility and innovation in the industry. That's next on Daily Drive. We
1: wanna hear your voice on Daily Drive. What would you like us to talk about this week on our Weekend Drive episode of the show? What are some of the biggest industry trends or
2: news stories you're thinking about? Send us a voicemail, text, or email, and you might hear it on the next edition of Weekend Drive. Here's how you can get in touch. Call us and leave a voicemail or text at
1: 313-444-2774. Again, that's 313-444-2774. You can also record your voice on your smartphone and send it to drive at autonews.com. That's drive one word, at
2: autonews.com. And tune into the show this weekend. You might hear your question or comment.
0: Managing your used inventory is not exclusive to one person or one part of the dealership. What does the communication look like between your fixed ops and variable teams? Are your vehicles getting passed from trade-in to recon with no hiccups? What is your average cycle time to get a used car ready for sale? There is a lot to keep track of all at once. Right now, you could be experiencing three major issues with your recon information, causing process breakdowns. One having to manually track down data. Two, outdated information, giving you an incorrect picture of the market and process. Three, no recon visibility through the appraisal. Full insight at each step is crucial to making your used car department the most efficient and profitable it can be. Our new integration between ReconTrack and AutoVision, a vehicle acquisition market analysis platform, creates an end-to-end tool for your used car department to address these bottlenecks with access to live appraisal information and reconditioning stats you get a single view of every vehicle with all the data you need right in one place make more educated decisions on your used car inventory faster with all your data in one place visit info.recontract.com/autovision for more information that's info.rec ontraccom dot com slash A-U-T-O-V-I-S-I-O-N.
1: Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. 2024 isn't the easiest time to be optimistic about some of the most touted technological changes in the automotive industry. In the past year, companies hoping to spearhead driverless technology have hit some major roadblocks, think Cruise. And electrification devotees find themselves on the defensive as red-hot growth in demand slows a bit. But Larry Burns isn't bothered by any of that. The now-retired former Vice President of Research and Development for General Motors says these and other technologies are only beginning to drive more freedom and accessibility in transportation. Burns spoke with Automotive News Tech and Innovation Team Leader Pete Bigelow on Shift, a podcast about mobility. Here's a piece of their conversation.
4: How did your ideas around accessibility to convenience, to freedom, how does it really affect your, your thinking today?
3: Yeah, for, let me first define the word accessibility because it tends to be used in, in transportation for uh, people with disabilities. And I certainly respect why they've embraced that word because accessibility really means independence and freedom and autonomy. And I, I get that. But when I define it, I'm talking about your freedom to access the things you do. That makes up your everyday life. And the things back in the 1970s that you did in the early 70s really required a lot of transportation. Let me give you one quick example. When I first started as a co-op student at General Motors, every Friday my boss would come in and give me a physical paycheck on Friday. And I jumped in my car and drove to the bank at lunchtime because that was the only chance I had to get to the bank to cash my check because I needed physical cash To live my life the next week. Everybody else did too. So you get to the bank and there was a line. The problem wasn't that there weren't banks and it wasn't that I didn't have a car. It was that my schedule relative to the bank schedule meant I had to do that activity in a tight window. So I thought about the future in terms of this interdependence between transportation, which is movement from one point to another, and that takes time. The schedule of activities, I call that the temporal aspect of accessibility. And the the um, uh, spatial aspect of accessibility was where things were located. Most people were looking at transportation either through the lens of the trip or just through uh, the density of population and the density of where things were located. They were missing that time dimension. What was amazing, Pete, is as the digital age hit in 1980 and we began to get um, GPS and cell phones and the internet, All of the innovation that was impacting accessibility was around that time dimension. It was freeing me up. My daughters don't even go to banks today because they can do everything banking-wise online. E-commerce lets me consume things without having to make a trip. And there's no amount of speed increase you can give me on my trip that'll save me as much time as not having to take a trip. Another example is a favorite one of mine. My, um, younger daughter and older daughter, they've combined to create a business. It's called uh, Pantry Meals. It's an online food planning influencer business. And one of the recipes they had me make one day, I was going to make it the next day, called for tandoori seasoning. I live in Franklin, Michigan. The nearest grocery store is Johnny Pomodoro's, which was three miles away. I could have jumped in my car, drove to Johnny's three miles, parked, got out, walked in, search for spices, hope they had it, bought it, came back home, maybe spend 30 minutes in that whole adventure, and paid six bucks for it. Instead, I had it on my porch in 16 hours and $5.50. Again, the speed at which I traveled to Johnny's was totally irrelevant compared to the time I saved by using five minutes to find that seasoning on the internet. And Pete, I would contend the biggest competitive threat to auto companies in the future are not another auto company. It's how is this maturing of digital technology shaping the things we do every day? And how is that going to change our need to hop in a car and go somewhere? And that's really an important question that needs to be defined by the industry. That
4: is because I think, to be honest, if you would have asked me before this conversation, what's the What's the biggest threat to a traditional? I'll call it traditional U.S. automaker. I would have probably said the Chinese automakers. Uh, but you're, you just maybe think about that in a different way. It's it's not another automaker. It's the idea of what we use a car to go do, or what do we, we even a car need a car anymore? Which I think you're suggesting, perhaps uh, we need fewer cars or or different vehicles to do a different task.
3: Yeah, I see this as a very exciting opportunity, actually, for the industry. And I think that's important for people to hear it that way. Yes, the Chinese electric vehicles are a threat. They're nicely designed, they're very low cost. And um, it seems like there probably will be a pathway someday where they're going to be in the U.S. market. So we've got to deal with that. But I, I feel... When when I was growing up, um, again I'm dating myself a bit. I, I was born in 1951, so when I was reaching um, high school age, that was in the 60s. When, you know, cars falling in love with your car is what it was all about. It really was the embodiment of of freedom, and um, you express that with with the vehicle that you bought. And now I see my kids when they were growing up, they would saw the freedom through their cell phone. Both of my daughters, they're in their middle 30s, and they, when they got their first car, they had already had their cell phone for four or five years. And I asked them, what would they give up first, their car or their cell phone? they give up their car before they did their cell phone, because it was such an important part of how they lived their lives. I recognize the jury's still out on remote work, but there's something going on there. N- not Not every job, not every day, but there's something going on there. Even if everybody just commuted to work three days a week instead of five days a week, you're going to have an impact on travel. Also, think about the household as the consumption unit. So we had a car for each daughter, and my wife and I had a car. Now, let's say in the future, rather than having a four-car household, my two daughters lived near me. They don't, but let's say hypothetically they did. And they each had a car, and my wife and I had a car, and We could reposition those three cars autonomously. So on the days where my wife and I needed two cars, given what we were doing, Hillary's car could come over and I could use it, or Natalie could borrow Hillary's car. And suddenly you could have three households sharing three cars instead of maybe three households with six cars. So that's what's going on, Pete. And and now, now you get back to the roots of the industry in the 60s were really fashion. I couldn't wait each year because I grew up in Waterford, Michigan. A lot of my neighbors worked for Pontiac Motor, and many of them would get their new Pontiac every year, new colors and and new designs. and That was a big deal. And that was because they were marketing fashion. And I think this new DNA for mobility machines, I'm not going to use the word car, electric connected autonomous, and then you Think about how that machine or device fits into your life in terms of what what you need to do that requires movement. And now when you move somewhere, you move in a fashion statement. And because this thing is probably more like a 1,500-pound machine than a five or 6,000-pound machine, it's far less costly. And maybe we get back to fashion and annual fashion changes. And that doesn't mean you can't have something really premium like an Armani suit. And that's going to get exciting for the designers, really exciting, I think. I think it's going to just unleash all kinds of creativity about what what a machine should be that supports our life. So I get excited about that, Pete.
4: Is the new fashion, Larry, software-based and less about what what this machine looks like and more about what it can it can do, how it can change year to year, as you mentioned, via over-the-air updates uh, and and be enabled by software?
3: I, I I think so, but I still think things have to look really, really nice. I can remember when the iPod um nano came out, and Wired magazine, I believe, had an article in the first paragraph of the article said, I've got my nano in my hands and I'm turning it around, I'm looking at it and I want to suck on it like a piece of candy. I'm going, (laughs) what? It's a rectangle. But they embodied that design. I can still remember the first advertising, Pete, the silhouette of a person and they had the white cords, but the person had it on on their belt and they were dancing. And that was it. It was like a gray background, this, this black silhouette with white cords. I'm going, wow. So I don't think you need to, to not embrace great design and what we're talking about. And what, I, what you know, I, I just think people like to make a fashion statement. My wife is a hairstylist, by the way, so she's very fashion conscious. She always has been. I'm an engineer, it's not that important to me, but it's important to her how I dress. Pete, I probably have 20 pair of blue jeans in my closet that never wore out because they never wear out they became obsolete from a styling standpoint, and she won't let me be caught dead in them. So I have to get new jeans every year because some years the legs are tighter, some years are baggier, some years they are higher on your hips and some years are lower on your hips and all of that stuff. And the industry works that way. So I I think people shouldn't feel threatened by what I'm saying about accessibility. I think they have to embrace it because there's a whole new wave of enabling technology beyond the internet and the cell phone and what's coming with generative AI, what's coming with holograms, uh, what's coming with system on chips and the enormous data processing that comes with that, what's coming from a massive number of creative young people who are getting schooled in the experience age and experience design and a realization that life isn't lived in the transportation sector, the housing sector, the communication sector, or the information sector. Life is lived with the integration of those things. And that's really what I think we have to grasp going forward. So it's hard to tease out of the data right now because the pandemic had a big impact on vehicle miles traveled per year, per car. But my instincts are telling me, uh, John McElroy shared the other day with me that he thinks we've reached peak auto as a society, and that the forces are going to start turning the corner. Now, his argument was based on the prices of cars, which are enormous. So we've got to find something that comes in underneath this ever-increasing price, ever-increasing over-design for the fundamental purpose of accessibility. My first car was a 1969 Volkswagen Beetle, $1,500 brand new, $50 a monthly payment, and it was a great accessibility machine. It really was.
1: Larry Burns is an author and former vice president of research and development for General Motors. He spoke with our own Pete Bigelow on Shift, a podcast about mobility. You can and should hear their full conversation on Shift
2: wherever you get your podcasts. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer, Jake Neer, as well as our own Michael Martinez, John Irwin, Hans Grimmel, and Caden Luckoff for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on tech and innovation, manufacturing, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com.
1: Come back tomorrow for part one of our conversation with General Motors Chief Financial Officer, Paul Jacobson. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review and subscribe so you never miss an
0: episode.